Today is part six in a six-part series, so we're going to wrap it all up today, this book of Ephesians, where Paul is writing to the Ephesian people in the region they're around. And I entitled today's lesson, Lockdown, about shoring up the fortress of our lives. And I want to begin with a quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, if you haven't ever read any of Spurgeon's stuff, he's amazing. He's one of the best preachers of all time, kind of an old school guy, perhaps from where you've come from or what you read mostly, but he's absolutely wonderful and he's very succinct into what he says. Anyway, he had two phrases in this quote that I wanted to camp on for a moment. The first of these is before us. The active and energetic Christian meets with temptations that others do not meet. Now we got to ask ourselves, is that true? Um, now, I don't know if qualitatively there are different temptations. The Bible seems to suggest that whatever you're going through is common to man. So I don't know if that's necessarily the case. However, I do believe the volume is different. I do believe, I mean, just let's get practical. If you are the enemy and you, and you see a, a really alive and active Christian running around and transforming the world for the kingdom of God, what are you going to do? Aren't you going to send a few more forces that way and try to shut them down? I mean, that's kind of, it's pretty practical to me. I think that's true. And indeed, that's what our team is going to be facing. Um, but look at the next phrase. This is the one that's kind of convicting. Idle, meaning folks that are not engaged. Idle persons can hardly be said to be in danger. They are a stage beyond that, and they are already overcome. Now, that's, that's pretty powerful stuff right there. And you're thinking, oh, Lord, I hope that's not me. Uh, God, you're not, trying to, you're not trying to tell me that I, I'm that guy that, or I'm that girl that's not engaged. Well, I don't know. That's certainly between you and God. But I need you to understand that today we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about protection. We're going to be finishing up last week. Remember last week we talked about marriages. We had a big thing. That was a whole wife submit to your husband's husband, love your wife. That whole passage. We went through that last week. We talked a lot about protecting our marriages. Now we're going to engage into parenthood. We're talking about kids and parents. So we'll finish out that family concept. But then we're going to be diving into the majority of the lesson, which is about spiritual warfare, about our personal lives getting attacked by Satan and his cohorts. So here's what you need to know. Look at the fill in the blank in front of you, and let me give you some thoughts just before I give that to you. Here's the idea. What God has wrought and what the cross has bought is victory. Now, I don't care whether it comes to our homes, our marriages, our children, even our personal lives, this fill-in-the-blank is true for you if you are a believer in Christ. And it is this. We are equipped to keep Satan at bay. We are equipped to keep Satan at bay. Now, just because you're equipped, does that mean that Satan's just going to hang out and not attack you? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, does that mean he's going to stay away from you? No. And unfortunately, in my life personally, not only does it not keep him at bay, I have a tendency to set out tea and cookies and have them over for a little while. I'm opening up my life totally half the time, joining this guy in rebellion and just saying, hey, come on over here, mess with my head. Okay, I understand the idea that just because God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, just because we are equipped to have sheer victory does not mean I'm utilizing everything that God has given us. It doesn't mean that I'm walking in holiness. It doesn't mean I'm walking in godliness. It doesn't mean that I'm protecting myself as much as I should. So we're going to be talking about that today, and in doing so, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, it's page 829, and the Bible's handed to you, 829. Ephesians chapter 6, 
verse 1. I'm just going to read the first four verses, then we'll pray for the word this morning, and then we will dive into our study together. Remember, if you've missed any of these parts, uh, they're free CDs that you can grab on that stuff, or you can download them for free as well. Catch up with us. Before we dive into Matthew, next week we're launching a 23-part series in Matthew. Uh, It's going to be pretty awesome. So let's wrap up Ephesians first. It begins like this. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian region of believers. He said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we don't know all of what we're supposed to be focusing on. We're going to be studying so much stuff and seeing so many words. And yet there are some very specific things you want to lock into our heart today. Would you reveal those? May our eyes be sensitive and open to what you're trying to show us. May our ears hear what you're trying to call out to us, and may we change, alter in regard to it. That, Father, you might be glorified, that we might be children that walk worthy of our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Seems kind of odd that he would directly reference the children, like he was writing a letter to them. I wouldn't imagine that a ton of the kids... As we think of it, because every time you picture this, you picture little kids, right? You wouldn't imagine that they would be reading this, that they're literate enough to be reading out these letters of Paul. Why would he address them very specifically? Why wouldn't he say, parents, make sure that your children obey you? He directly talks to the kids. Why? Well, let me expand your view for a moment of the word children. The word children in Greek is technos. Techna actually just means offspring. There is a word to, you can make little additions to techna to show that it's little children. That's not the word here. The word here is just offspring, meaning whoever your kids are, I don't care how old they are. The concept that is we're going to have to get our minds wrapped around is the idea that techna is trying to say in this context, no matter how old your kids are, if they're underneath your roof, they are techna. Mr. or Mrs. 28-year-old that is at home, your techna. Doesn't matter how old you are, it's who you come from and what you are. If you are at home underneath the authority of your parents, you fit this description. The reason why I'm trying to suggest that is this is a pretty strong statement. Children, obey your parents. What does it mean to obey? Well... Here's the definition I got when I looked it up. Unreasoning, unreasoning and implicit. What does that mean? It means obey in an unreasoning and implicit manner. That means I don't care what you think about what I just said. I didn't ask you to sift it through and think if it's a good idea. What I told you to do was obey me. That's what it means. It means we're not going to discuss this. This is not a matter where you're going to say, but I got a different perspective than you, therefore I'm not going to obey you. As a matter of fact, this word is very clear. That you are placed underneath the authority. It is implicit. It is clear. And you must follow that command. Now, of course, all passages in Scripture have a caveat. And that is the idea that, obviously, God is higher than your parents. 
So if they ask you to go against something that the Lord said, the Lord always wins on that one, right? We got that? But know that in all matters of life, it says, children, obey your parents, for this is right. Now that is an action issue. That means when they say to do it, you do it. Now understand, all children have this tendency of resistance, and that's healthy, that's necessary. But let's move on and find out a little bit why. If obey is about action, verse 2 is about attitude. Verse 2 quotes the fifth commandment. It says what? Honor your father and mother. The word honor means to value highly, place worth in, see them as useful. That is an attitude of the heart because we all know that as kids, no matter how old you are, You always know you can play the game where on the outside you do it, but on the inside you hate their guts. Right? So this one dives not only to action, but it dives to attitude. And it says, no, 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 no. In your heart, you hold your parents in high value. You honor them. Then it goes on and he makes a little parenthetical statement or kind of a sidebar. Paul says, which is the first commandment with a promise? That's actually incorrect. Now, I'm not going to correct the Apostle Paul. But I want you to know that we're not looking at it right. When he says it's the first commandment with a promise, it's actually the second. Second commandment with a promise. The first one's a general promise to mankind. The second one is very specific to families. Maybe that's what he's referring to. Or some scholars, most scholars, believe that they would say in a Hebrew family, this is the first commandment that you would be taught that has a promise. You go, wait a second, if there's ten commandments, shouldn't you teach the kids in order? Let's teach the kids the first commandment. Love your God above everything. God is one, right? Remember that? Well, what is the second one? Make no graven image or something like that. Is that what you're going to teach your two-year-old? Right? Come here, Johnny. Make not any graven image. Right? Kid's like, yeah, I'm not following you. You mean with my Play-Doh? Is that what you're saying? All right, I won't. Okay, what's the first commandment you're going to teach little ones? You're going to teach them automatically and say, I am in charge of you. I'm the steward over you. Therefore, you obey me and you need to honor me because I will guide you in the ways of the Lord. That's what we're going to do. I mean, that's the first one that you're going to get. Now, God didn't have to put a promise on this one, but he did. And it says this. That it may go well with you. And that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, we can make all kinds of jokes about how parents brought you into this world and they can take you out and all that stuff, right? Now, it's not super funny in the ancient Hebrew world because there is a punishment for for insubordination. You guys remember what that is? Yeah, stone the kids to death. Hey, that's a little different, isn't it? Okay, so... In other words, this could be an idea of going, listen, it'll go really well for you if you go ahead and obey your parents because we would hate to just all throw rocks at you till you die. Okay, now it could be that blatant. However, I think it's referring to something else. I think it's referring to the idea of learning discipline. Let me give you an example. I believe that whatever analogy you want to use, whether it's a, a butterfly coming out of the cocoon or it's a bird coming out of an egg, there needs to be a struggle and a strain in order to develop wings or develop the idea of flight. Now then, in the same way, I believe that kids need to grow up underneath the authority structure of the home and the parents and constantly push against to strengthen up their muscles. But in pushing against, they also still contain themselves that they might raise up the muscles necessary to get out there and do it themselves and fly and soar once they're out. 
See, all the things that I did in, in uh, battling against my mom. Now, I was a pretty easy kid. Uh, she'll tell you that. I was pretty, pretty mellow. We only argued about two things. Okay, we only argued about my hair length. Because remember, I had to be all the rockers, so I had to have the long hair, right? We had to argue about that. Then we had to argue about curfew. Those are the only two things that we really argued about. I really regret pushing against my mom all that time. Because I look back and I didn't realize that you're with your mom a very short amount of time in life. And you're outside of your parents' house for a very long amount of time. And I thought that in my world, it was everything. Because as long as I had been born, I only knew being housed underneath that home. So I felt like that was going to be the rest of my life. So I pushed against it. And I now regret. However, part of that pushing against was the idea of strengthening under a healthy umbrella. So that once the umbrella is removed, you can go out and be successful. And I would just suggest to all the kids here today. And kids, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're 45, you're still a kid. Uh, the idea that if you can strengthen up underneath the structure God has given you at home, you will do well later in life. Because you have developed the idea of discipline and strength. And that will lead you into better waters later on. So, I believe that's what it's referring to. But just as there's one bookend about children obeying their parents, on the parental side, there is a bookend, and it is in verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What is fathers referring to? Fathers. Good job. Okay, great. Now, here's the deal. It's talking about fathers. It's talking about dads as the head of the home. So it's inclusive of mothers as well. So moms, you get to be a part of this as well. But fathers are mentioned very specifically, and I would like to make a comment. In order for fathers to not exasperate their kids and to bring them up in the instruction and training of the Lord, that means you have to be involved. You hear what I'm saying? I don't ever want to hear anyone in this church ever say that's women's work that's just stupidity please do not ever say that around me because that gets me really hot under the collar here's why speaking from the children's point of view i only have two power players in my life for my development growing up you fathers are 50 percent of that if you abdicate your role, if you remove yourselves from my scenario, if you step out of my life and abandon me either emotionally or physically, you have now sent me spiraling and I have to try to get a grasp on my own life. You have done me a great disservice and in that area you have failed. Gentlemen, we must engage with our kids. That's what we do. And I don't care how old they are. You still input into their lives, even when they're not techna, even when they're not in under your own home. You still invest in your children. You guys, my wife, I can't reveal her age to you on tape. <laughs> However, yeah, thank you very much. However, I will tell you she's older than 18. Okay, great. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, the other day she got, she got a call from her dad and her dad asked her on a date. Okay, now they went and saw Indiana Jones. They went and had popcorn together and watched a movie. Now then, you have to understand that it doesn't matter how old you are. Is dad or mom still reaching back and investing in your life? That's what matters. Dads, we need you badly to be in our lives. We aren't healthy in the same way if you're not. 
So please invest in your children. It says right here a warning. Do not. This is a command of God. Do not exasperate your children. That means don't be an ungodly dictator. Do not, quote, provoke them to anger or despair. Paul adds in Colossians 3.21 that they might be discouraged. Don't snap your children's spirit. You have no right to do that. You are managing them for God. Their spirit needs to soar. Your job as a parent is to get them strong and healthy. So no, once we've stepped into the arena of breaking spirits or discouraging or tearing down or anger, we have now stepped out of the role of love. We are no longer being a functioning parent. Now we're just being mean. We must back up. Because our job is to love on our children. It says, instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You go, I can't do that. I don't know enough about Scripture. My kid's 16. That kid knows more than I'll ever know. Well, I guess you better get studying, huh? Because here's the deal. You go, why I can't answer all their questions. I didn't say you had to be a genius. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to get a book recommendation from someone in the children's ministry and then read it with your kids. It doesn't take a genius to be able to go, you know what, son, I have no idea the answer to that question. But gosh, I can go find out. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to be there and to say, you know what, I have some of those same questions in my heart. And I don't know the answer. Do you understand? All those things are role modeling. All those things are investing. All those things are caring. I'm not telling you that you have to be a super pastor at home. I'm not telling you any of that. What I'm telling you is you need to be there to talk with your kids and to share with them about God. It's not always easy. I understand that. I'm always trying to think creative ways to bring it to a seven and a four-year-old little girl. I'm a pastor and I'm always trying to scan. How can I say this in a way that they'll understand it? But sometimes we're laying, you know, you guys know when kids want to talk, right? It's always at bedtime. They have no interest in talking to you in the rest of the day. But the minute bedtime comes, they don't want to go to sleep. And they'll go, da-da-da, I've got another question for you, okay? Well, that's what happens in our household. And they're laying in bed. She goes, will you just lay here with me for a while? So for a few minutes, I'll lay there in her bed. And I'll go, what? What's going on? Well, i got a question. i got a question. And then she thinks up some grand question about God. And she's just trying to get me to hang out for a little while. But those are little openings. Those are little sliding windows into her life. And I get a chance to invest in her. And I don't ever want that to stop. I sure hope that, you know what, when she's 52 and we're hanging out together, she said, Dad, Dad, i got a question for you. I hope it never changes. I want to have that same conversation. Amen? Now, the only way we're going to understand the power of this passage and why this is so revolutionary for Paul to write this down is to understand two, two concepts, the ancient world and our present world. Let me give you a bit of a history lesson. In the Roman Empire, there was something known as patria protestas. It's a Latin word for a father's right. A father's right was that from birth, when you have children, you own them. You have right over life and death until the day they die or you die. And it was extremely strong. As a matter of fact, when a child was born, the first thing that would occur for a child is that as the, after the cord was cut, you lay the child before the father at his feet. He has two choices. He either picks up the child, and that means the child is included into the family. 
or he turns and walks away. If he turns and walks away, that means the child is to be discarded. Now, the way they would largely do that, especially for the sickly, the weak, or the deformed, they would drown them. So you were then supposed to take, as a maidservant or whatever of the house, you take the child out and drown it and kill it and get rid of it. Or you had one other option, and that's to go put it out in the Roman Forum. Now, I had an opportunity in September to go to the Colosseum, to go to Rome, and right across the street from the Colosseum is the open Roman Forum that they've excavated over the years. And it was where the Roman Senate was. A lot of legal matters were handled there, open marketplace. They would place the child out there in the exposed elements, and then society had a choice to do two things. You either leave the child there to die, or you pick it up. Now, if you pick it up, you now own it, because it's free. It's basically the garbage. So you can pick up the child and take it home. You kind of go, oh, that's kind of a neat thing. Somebody wants to go adopt the child. No. The only reason to pick up the child in that day and age was to raise it as a slave or a prostitute and make cash off of it. So when you abandon your child, you handed it off to the rest of the world to make cash off your kid. That was the Roman world. Now, the patria protestas never stopped. Technically, according to the books, even if you are 55 years old, your father could say, I want you to die. And he has right over life and death over you in the Roman world. Now, practically speaking, society wouldn't let him do it. They're like, no, 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 he's already useful to us, so you can't just step in and kill your own kid. We're done with that. So practically speaking, they stopped that from occurring. However, on the books, it was so. In other words, the father had absolute power. If he was a bad father, he could destroy your child. He had every right in society's eyes to shackle his children, to abuse his children, to make them servants and make him work for them. In light of that, Paul says these words, is that not then revolutionary? It's not only do you take care of your kids, but you're intimately involved with your kids. That's a whole different ballgame. Now then, let me speak of today's world. I believe, and this may be uh, naive of me, but I believe that today's world, children struggle with this more than any other generation in all of history. Why? Because we live in the information age. In the information age, information is power. And who has most access to information? But children. They know more about technology than you do. As a matter of fact, because of their access to technology, there is no point in asking you any questions at all. You understand that? Because you are the most ignorant of all. Because all they have to do, let's say they want to know how to prepare for college. Why in the world would you ask your parents that? Why wouldn't you go to a search engine? You guys know what a search engine is? You get on the internet, you ask it a question, you type in, in quotes, how do I prepare for college? End quote, boom, search. A million hits will come back from people that have degrees after their name that will tell you exactly how to prepare for college. Why would you ask your parents? You know more than they do. You have access more than they do. You can use your cell phone properly. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Now, all throughout history, children have always thought their parents were morons. That is not new. But this is the first time in history that society has backed them up. Do you understand? In the past, children have thought their parents were morons, but still society would say, well, you can't get a job from me without your parents signing off on that. They would still back off and say, no, your parents need to have some authorization in this. Children have never been empowered more than in this society in this day and age. They're having a really hard time obeying you because they don't think you know better. 
problem is they don't have the maturity to match their information. The problem is they don't have the life experience to match their information. That's why they need us. But understand the struggle that they're going through. Because why would you ask someone more ignorant than you a question? Last thought on that, just to give you guys how far this can shoot. Have you guys noticed that in the current political climate, uh, the whole Barack versus Clinton, uh, those guys against McCain, there's an awful lot of commentary talking about blogs. Have you guys seen this? It's on the radios all the time. Everything's on the TV. So-and-so was blogging about this, and in this political blog, blah, 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 blah. A blog is merely an online commentary or an online diary. It stands for weblog, Right? Do you understand that there's no real way to know who's on the other side of a blog? Do you have any understanding that you could have it be a 12-year-old? That literally a 12-year-old can log on, create an online identity in a political forum, and begin to shape the United States government. And most of you have no idea how they could do that. This is the world that we live in. So is it any wonder that they would struggle with this passage. But I will tell you, anyone that can hear my voice, if you are a child, you will do yourself a great disfavor if you do not honor and obey your parents because you're shooting yourself in the foot. If you want to be strong, do that. Amen? We move on to the next passage, which brings up a whole other can of worms. Verse 5. Slaves... Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. That means respect the office that they hold. And with sincerity of heart, meaning own it, believe it, from the very depths of you, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, that's the third time the heart has been mentioned, as if you are serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Let me explain a little bit about context. In the Roman Empire in Paul's day, it is estimated that there were 120 million people. Half is estimated to be slaves. 60 million slaves. One out of every two people in society were slaves. You got six buddies, three of them are slaves. That's the climate Paul is writing in. When Christianity hit the Roman culture, did it hit the aristocracy or the common man? Common man. Therefore, the vast majority of the Christian church in Rome, or even in Turkey and Greece, was majority slaves. So basically, the climate that he's writing in is if all of us were hanging out together, I would say probably one-eighth of us would be free. Free men. Everyone else, we're all slaves. We all just hang out and talk about what it's like to be a slave. There were Christian slave owners who will be addressed next. However, he's talking to the slaves and saying, when you operate with your master, you don't really work for him. You work for Jesus. And you do an excellent work because we're talking about the quality of who you are, not whether or not he's a good or bad guy. This is all about your heart and whether or not on your side of the ledger you've done a good job. Now let me ask you a question. Why doesn't Paul say slavery is bad? Why didn't he comment on that? He says a lot of things are bad, so why didn't he comment on that? Well, we got a couple choices. It's very possible that Paul said, you know what, regardless of what title you call anybody... People are harming other people. So I don't know what we want to call it. Let's just call it horrible treatment of humanity. 
I mean, that I'm against. He's always been against that. But in Paul's day, he's like, you know what? I'm currently in chains myself. So as far as what our title is, I don't know if it necessarily matters. What I'm telling you is there's some garbage out there and we need to revolutionize it from the ground up. See, I think that Jesus, instead of stepping out and attacking one specific issue of society, I think Jesus was seeking to revolutionize all of humanity. I think that it was much bigger issue than that. And I think that he was trying to go at the deepest problem, which is the heart of man. Now, praise the Lord. Along the way, we had some people step up. In my opinion, let's talk about slavery in this country was not that long ago. Our country's not that old. I am ashamed and abhorred at how the Christian church handled the issue of slavery in America. I'm embarrassed. It's absolutely incorrect. We should have been more vocal. We should have said more. We should have done more because it was absolutely unacceptable. It's not right. But praise the Lord, some people grabbed the truths of Scripture, like Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, stepped out, put their life on the line, and said, enough is enough. And things began to change. There is no room for racism. There is no room for slavery in the Christian mindset. That's unacceptable. As a matter of fact, Paul does address the issue in far more detail in a book called Philemon. If you guys remember that, Onesimus was a runaway slave coming back to his master. And Paul said, you know what? He teaches people. If you can get free, you need to be free. It's a lot better to be free than be a slave. And by the way, if you're a slave owner, I want you to consider very strongly setting your slaves free. Paul did lay the foundation for the eradication of slavery. But I need you to understand... I don't know what you want to call it, but people have always been horrible to other people. And that's not okay under any title. Amen? Amen. What we need to understand through this stuff is it moves on in verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, meaning with respect and sincerity of heart. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no favoritism with him. In other words, I don't care how big of a dog you think you are. God owns you both. So don't mess around. Okay, in that world, slavery could go one of two different directions in the ancient world. If you had a good slave master, if you had a good master, your life could be incredible. Understand that in the Roman world, you could go up to high levels of government. You could be doctors. You could be lawyers. You could be loved on. There's tons of writing, ancient writing, that talks about how much so-and-so adored his slave. That it was just like a member of the family and they would dote on them and adorn them with gifts. And they would love them with all their heart. There were those masters. And basically the sky was the limit. You could do anything. But if you had a bad master... Phrases like slaves are no better than cattle that can speak came into play. They could rape you with no problems, no qualms. They could chain you. They could kill you. They could harm you. And they did repeatedly. And there was nothing that society would say. Nothing that society cared about. You had absolute power over life and death over your slaves. Everything had to do with who your owner was. In that climate, Paul speaks this and says, no, we are people. We love each other from the heart. We do not lord our authority over another. We treat people with humane respect. We care about them. We seek their best interest. For we will love in an agape fashion. 
For that is who we are. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Turning a corner here for the last remaining minutes that we have, we speak on the issue of spiritual warfare. In verse 10, Paul said, Finally, meaning in closing, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Let me explain something to you that you must understand. In and of yourself, Satan is smarter than you, faster than you, better than you, better than you at everything. All of his demons are way better than you are at everything. So insofar as yourself, you are pretty much chow for this lion that is seeking who he may devour. However, as a believer, you got a big old enormous bodyguard standing right behind you. That is what matters. Be strong. Be empowered is that word. By what? By God's strength. By God's power. For greater is he that is within us than he that is what? Within the world. The idea is you must understand that God has given you everything you need to be victorious. That God is not going to allow his children to be trampled on by the enemy. That he has fully equipped us and given us more than enough, lavished on us, the power and the dynamite to get rid of the enemy and to demolish strongholds, the Bible says. Therefore, we read this with confidence. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Now he's going to give you six things to put on. The first three are common elements of a Roman's war gear that you would have on the battlefield at all times, whether you're fighting or not. The back three are things that you only put on right before engagement of warfare. All right. So we're going to go through these things. Now, lest you think that, where did Paul get this great metaphor? Oh my gosh, he's so deep. Okay. Who's he chained to when he's writing it? A Roman soldier. So the whole time he's writing, he's like, it's kind of like, looks over to his left, kind of like a Roman soldier, okay? It's not rocket science. The guy's sitting right there, okay? So he moves on, and this is what he says that we must do. Put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand. You're going to hit that four times. Almost always, uh, the Bible speaks in spiritual warfare of standing your ground, almost like the ground has already been won in Jesus Christ on the cross. Now it's your job to hold the ground and not give way. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word in Greek is methodia, and it's used of uh, animals stalking their prey in a very wily fashion or a very scheming fashion. Because that's what Satan is doing with us. That you may be able to take your stand against whatever he throws your direction. For our struggle or our wrestling, our hand-to-hand combat, our wrestling in the ring is not against flesh and blood. People are not your problem. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, what day is evil? Every day that ends in Y. Okay, great. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, you can stand. Verse 14. So stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, growing up, uh, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have grown up in the church uh, from age 10 and up? How many of you guys have been in the church since 10? Okay, the vast majority of you. Have you not heard this ad nauseum? Oh my gosh, all the way from felt boards. You guys remember felt boards? Yeah! Felt boards, throw on the armor of God. Now, unfortunately, because everyone's trying to get creative with this whole stuff and make it new and fresh for the kids, 
they start adding on some weird, creepy stuff. They start saying things like, did you put your armor on today? If you didn't put your armor on today, oh my gosh, you got to spray coat your armor. What are you doing? you got to put your armor on. If you don't have your armor on, Satan's going to come and jump at you. Okay, all that stuff is bogus. This is super practical. Here's what it means. He's just using a metaphor. Here's what it means. It starts out with a belt of truth. Now, that sounds like a pretty lame way to start. Okay, we're going into battle and we're talking about my little baby belt. Okay, that's not exactly exciting. Well, hold on a second. Let's be practical. If you're a Roman guy, what do you wear? Dress. We all clear on that? If you're a Roman guy in battle, what do you wear? Miniskirt. Okay, so if I'm going out to attack someone in a muumuu, I'm probably going to trip up in the process. Are we all clear on that? I'm not exactly going to be ah, doing all my flying, jumping things if I got this big old billowy dress hanging out. So what do you got to do first? First thing you got to do is lock it down. Boom, you lock that strap down. And you hang on and go, I'm going into battle, right? Because now everything's going to hang off. You got to make sure you are unencumbered to do the warfare that is before you, yeah? Okay, if that is the case, what does truth do? What do I mean by truth? You need to know what God says. You need to know what His Word says. You need to know what is true in this world. If you do not, then Satan can mess with your head. He can mess with everything about you. He can begin to throw you into the next fad. He can begin to throw you into the next movement. He can begin to throw a bunch of stuff at you. You need to know the truth. That way you can move about unencumbered without hindrance. That's all it means. We strap on the belt of truth. The second one is what? But the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus Christ on the cross gave us His righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, the Bible says. In other words, what we can generate is not all that hot. But Jesus gave us His righteousness in standing and it allowed us to walk and live a holy life. A godly life is the righteousness it's talking about here. That you have the undershielding of what Jesus has done for you. Now it's your job to live in a godly fashion. As you continue to move out in a godly, holy fashion, you will find that that begins to defeat the schemes of the enemy. The breastplate of righteousness. What is the third? It says, then, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now all my life I've been taught that this meant you need to be ready to share the gospel. However, upon examination, I think that's wrong. I don't think that's accurate at all. As a matter of fact, I believe that it means something else. What is the whole context of what we're talking about today? Is to what your ground? Stand your ground. Why are we suddenly running around handing out the gospel to everybody? I thought we were holding our ground. I thought we were in warfare. Okay, here's what it means. The Roman soldiers would tap nails to the bottom of their shoes to point into the ground. That's called cleats. You guys know what I'm talking about? Why do you wear cleats on a soccer field? So you don't slip. Same thing in warfare. If you're holding your territory and someone comes and advances against you, you need to be able to hold your ground. If you slip, you die. So you need to make sure that your feet are shod or your feet are ready to be able to be strapped down, locked in, to hold your ground. That if you need to pivot to your left, you can do that. If you need to run to your right, you can do that. There is no shifting sand. There's no moving ground. You are locked in to hold your stand. Where does that come from? It comes from the good news. What's the good news? We live under a new covenant in Jesus Christ. We now live under grace. That as much as Satan will throw schemes at us, we can always go back to the fact that the only reason we are saved is what? By grace, through faith. That freedom to live 
allows us to maneuver where we need to maneuver and not give up any ground. We clear on that? The last three are the things that you put on right before you go into battle. It says what? In addition to all of this, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Why would you not carry that around at all times? Because it's enormous. The shield that it's talking to is not the small buckler round shield that you would use in hand-to-hand combat. It is the four and a half foot by two foot door that you carry around. You guys understand how big that is? That's really enormous. You're carrying that thing. Why? What is the point of it? Well, here's how warfare went in the ancient world. If I'm going to fight my warriors against your warriors, we're probably going to meet in a place. As you guys advance towards me, I want to kill you from far away. If I can kill you from far away, I don't have to fight as many of you up close. Are we all clear on that? Now, you guys have probably seen this stuff at Tolkien movies or Narnia movies or 300 movies or whatever you want to call it, right? But here's how it goes. What do we want to do? I want to shoot you far away. So I grab my archers. We all line up and we all dip our arrows in tar or pitch. Then we get our big lighters out. We light them on up. Then we all stand there and we say, what? Draw back. Boom. Draw back your arrow. You have no idea where you're shooting. You're just shooting towards the enemy. You all of a sudden fire. When you've got 10,000 arrows showering down on somebody, somebody's bound to not be paying attention. All those arrows, bam, 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 it just wipes out a whole bunch of people. Then you fly into battle. So when they do the same thing back your direction, the Romans prepared for that. They would all hunker down underneath their doors. You hide behind that enormous shield until all the arrows are done falling. Then you break out from there and you run into battle. That's the picture here. And sometimes what it means by faith is you believe God at his word. Because here's here my personal opinion. It's happened to me in my life a lot. may have happened to you. There are times in your Christian faith when your mind is bent into a pretzel. You have no idea which way is up. You can't remember what you believe. You don't remember what in the world you're even doubting anymore. And you're completely screwed up in your head. And you can't sort out what should I be focusing on and I'm totally confused. And Sometimes you've got to cool your jets, hide underneath your shield and say, I believe in Jesus and I believe it because the Bible tells me so. And you go back to Bible school in kindergarten and you hide in Jesus. You go back to the basics. And you allow Jesus, who is always true, to shield you. You see, Adam and Eve didn't believe God at his word. He said, don't eat the tree. And they said, I think you're holding out on me. And thus, the fall of mankind began. But Jesus, in his temptation in the desert, said what? My father said, you're done here. And we are not having this conversation anymore. We need, at times... When Satan's volleying so many attacks at us, we just need to hunker down and believe. He moves on. He said, not only that, but take the helmet of salvation. What does the helmet protect? Your head protects your mind, your brain. If they get an arrow in there, what happens? You're done. The salvation is the idea of wrapping around your mind the concept that Jesus has you safe in his hands and Satan can do nothing about it. That you walk with this shielding over your head to say, I am saved in Jesus Christ alone. It's never been about me. It's never been about my merits. It's never been about that. And I will not allow Satan to crash in and kill me. 
I will be protected. We finish with the final two elements. Your only two offensive and defensive weapons, which are number one, what? It says to take up the sword of the Spirit. Now it means it's a spirit sword, and he's letting you borrow it. And he hands you over the sword, which is what? The Word of God. This is what we fight with. If you don't know this, you got nothing to fight with. That's why we know this backwards and forwards. That's why in this church, we're, we're, I'm teaching expositorily. You better know this stuff backwards and forwards. Because the only thing that Jesus fought with in the desert was this. And if the Son of God did that, don't you think we should do that? The bottom line is, it says that it's able to demolish strongholds. It has all the power that we need. Because it's going back to the source. It can divide bone and marrow. It can divide intentions of the heart. This is the sharpest thing that we've got. Your second most powerful tool is what? Prayer. Did you see the next phrase? It says this. Um, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now this may, this last analogy I use may uh, sting some of you, your sensibilities, because it stir, stirs up bad memories of the Persian Gulf, Vietnam, stuff like that. But there's a phrase called reconnaissance by fire. And it's an important concept to me. And here's the idea that in a little bit more modern warfare, what would occur is that instead of the flaming arrows that I would shoot, I call in an airstrike. Which means I need to advance into that valley, so what I do is I call out the coordinates of that valley, and out of nowhere, here come these jets. And they just lay down a whole thing of fire, burn the whole valley over, and then you march in and fight the skirmishes. That is how I have always pictured prayer. When we, it's calling in an airstrike beforehand. When we meet before every weekend, the worship team, the prayer team, and myself meet in the back room. And we lay down prayer cover. So by the time we get out here, we're only picking up the skirmishes. Because God will do all the heavy lifting. And it's not anything magical. Did you make sure to call in the airstrike? Blah, 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 blah. No, quit making it ridiculous. It's just practical. Let God go in and clear the area first and say, God, will you shield us today? Will you, Holy Spirit, will you fill this place that we might hear you and see you? It's very practical, but allow God to move in first. I need God to knock the walls of Jericho down before I can go in and storm the city. Does that make sense? I believe that's all that it's saying. With this in mind, Paul says, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray for also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. What was his concern? He was going to chicken out. Paul the apostle scared? You better believe it. It's called reality. He finishes with this. Tychicus, which is a good man who is taking this letter to the Ephesian region. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. That's called fellowship and why we keep showing up at church. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. As we close, know this. God has equipped us with everything we need to keep the enemy at bay. Whether or not we operate in those things, 
is up to the individual. I encourage you today that if as you were scanning through that list, there were some holes in your armor, that you didn't have a grasp on the truth, that you have never engaged in salvation with Christ. As you go through, you're not ready by understanding the gospel, that you don't have sure footing. I ask you today to sure up your relationship with God and begin a process by which you might be locked down. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for loving us, for caring for us, for uh, opening up our eyes, not only to challenges, but to the excitement to know that you have done what we could not do. But Lord, I pray that you would allow this to soak deep within our spirit and that we would change because of it. And that we would leave here different men and women. May you be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.